Welcome to The Trail Ahead, conversations at the intersection of race, environment, history, culture, and the outdoors. We're your hosts, Addie and Faith. We bring on folks from all walks of life to have real, authentic, messy dialogue that can lead to tangible change. This week, we talked to Peyton Thomas, an ultra runner and scientist living in Boulder, Colorado. Along with being a sponsored trail athlete who has also competed in the Olympic trials, she holds a PhD in marine biology. So yes, it's more accurate to say Dr. Peyton Thomas. We talk about the link between oceans and climate change, the joys and challenges of trail running, and what it means to see yourself in the running community. Peyton, thank you so much for joining us on the trail ahead. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. (laughs) If you could please introduce yourself in whatever way strikes you today and now. I'm Peyton Thomas. I'm a runner and a marine scientist. And yeah, just going through the motions of life. Here, here, here. (laughs) Aren't we all? So you just recently moved to Boulder, is that right? I did. I just moved to Boulder for a postdoc at CU because um, I finished my PhD in May. Congratulations. That's a huge deal. Thanks. <laughs> How many years was the program? I was there for four and a half years, which I guess is technically typical, but I started out as a master's student and then transitioned into the PhD program like a year and a half into my program because my original project was demolished <laughs> by a hurricane. So really, I finished my PhD in like three years, which is, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about it. <laughs> I'm glad to be in Boulder, but yeah, just going with it. <laughs> yeah. I guess that's also what happens. Like you run the risk of that kind of thing happening when you study marine ecosystems like you do. I'm curious how you found your way into marine biology and the studies that you undertook. And I'm also really curious how it's going living in a landlocked state, which just popped into my mind, but we can get into that later. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, curious how you found yourself in this course of study. Yeah, I feel like I've gotten that question a lot, actually, because also growing up in sort of a landlocked state, um, most people wouldn't think that like I would have dreams of being a marine biologist because I feel like most kids or at least whenever I tell people I'm a marine biologist people are like oh I remember when I was a kid I wanted to be that um (laughs) I didn't really have that same sentiment I also didn't really know what being a marine biologist meant um because it can mean a wide variety of things which is sort of what's so interesting about the title but I sort of fell into marine biology, to be honest, because growing up, I just wanted to be a veterinarian. I just wanted to work with animals in some capacity, but I didn't know the best way to do that. And I think I have just always been really curious about the world around me, but didn't really know like the best avenue to pursue that. And then So like up until undergrad, I was fully pursuing pre-veterinary medicine and like wanted to go that route. And then in the middle of college, I sort of realized that I wasn't really in love with the idea of going to vet school. And I got pulled aside by one of my professors who was doing research on coastal fish 
and microplastic ingestion. And it sort of combined these two big interests of mine, which are like obviously loving animals. I didn't really have a huge desire to study fish because it's not like I had a big interaction with fisheries throughout my life. Like my family doesn't do a ton of fishing as part of their outdoor living. But it was just something that I fell into really in college. But yeah, so it combined a curiosity for animals and then also a desire to understand what we're doing as humans to impact the world around us and the environment. And so I started there and um, yeah, just fell in love with this idea that I am trying to understand these organisms on a deeper level and also potentially helping them in a way that seems bigger than being a veterinarian. Not that veterinarians do not have a really wonderful and meaningful job, but I think I just, I needed something a bit more entwined with like the human component of our impact on the environment. So, And there is a specific reason why you're not the only fish mammologist and biologist, et cetera, in that landlocked state. Could you explain like how you ended up there? (laughs) Yeah, I'm definitely not. Well, it seems interesting at CU. There really aren't very many fish people, but there are a lot of people who are in the marine related field. I'm starting this new project um, that's based in Alaska, but there's a huge oceanography and Arctic studies program here at CU. So basically, Colorado is really where tons of oceanographic people flock to for some reason, I guess, because it intertwines with the atmospheric research. But yeah, there are a ton of people here. It's sort of surprising. Like a few weeks ago, we had a Patagonia community run and there were four marine biologists in the same in the same run. And it was really funny. But yeah, my project now is focused on creating some bioenergetics or growth models for vulnerable fish species in the Yukon River in Alaska. And these models are hopefully going to be for species that are used primarily by indigenous communities that rely on them for subsistence fishing. So I was really excited about this job because it sort of feels like radical, I guess, for for academic studies, because not a lot of academic institutions or government institutions are involving indigenous communities in their work or in our full understanding of ecosystems that we go to regularly or like need to better understand as a whole to protect our whole planet. So yeah, part of the reason why I was interested in this job was because it just seemed pretty radical. (laughs) That sounds like one of the coolest projects I've ever heard of, to be honest. So that's amazing. (laughs) That is, wow. I mean, it does come, it's amazing how much it combines the work you've done. And it's so up your alley in terms of the fit and where it is. That's also very cool. I'm wondering if Faith or I can be research assistants for you on that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Well, and it's also really interesting, too, because we've spoken to a few amazing folks who work in this space, marine biology and ocean ecosystem protection. And I think that more and more it's become clear, I think, to the general population, even if you're not reading about you know, climate headlines every day, how critical 
oceans as an ecosystem are to the climate conversation in general. And I'm just curious if you, this is more of like a scientific question, but for those climate nerds out there, if you could talk a little bit more about that connection, because when you talk to some folks, it's like the ocean and climate, they're inextricably linked. These conversations cannot be you know, extracted from one another. They have to be in tandem because ocean protection is so central to the climate conversation. So I'm curious your take on that and kind of if you can talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, you sort of have it spot on. I, I mean, if we think about our entire Earth, I mean, we know majority of it is ocean and we consider it like this big black box. <laughs> like, we have no idea really in totality what is actually going on in terms of like climate change impacts or just like general basic understanding of all of these currents and systems and like ecosystems that exist, uh, we're really just scratching the surface um, in terms of our own knowledge. And so the fact that uh, we know that climate change is having this huge impact on the system also sort of uh, further constrains our our ability to learn more about this place. Like we have such a shortened amount of time and we have such a big reach, I guess, to fully understand everything that is happening there. Um, Because it feels like as humans, most of the time, I feel like we mostly talk about land and land-based practices and land issues, but land makes up such a small amount of the earth and everything feeds back into each other. And yeah, I think just the oceans are extremely critical and we really just don't know that much about it. And I think the best way to learn about it is to sort of immerse yourself in that environment if you have the opportunity to at any point in your life. And yeah, anyone who can have that sort of experience is helpful for everyone, I think, to like fully understand the scope of change that's happening. And especially looking at it from the study of just like individual animals, which is how I've mostly been viewing changes that are happening in the ocean. Like, so with this new project, it's sort of different because I'm working with people that are more in like the physical science realm. So people who are working more on hydrology. So they're actually looking at like changes in the landscape, which I think in a way is more tangible for people to to understand. Whereas like when I'm studying individual animals or like populations of animals, it's a bit more difficult for for people to understand the scope of change that's happening like within this particular species. And so it's interesting getting input and feedback from people who are focused on like place and systems and trying to integrate that with my understanding of just like this tiny organism. And so I think like even for me as a person that was at least relatively regularly immersed in a marine environment, just having other people who can like contextualize the change and see it in real or show it in real time is really helpful. But I also think like it doesn't take critical and like really intense um, scientists to be able to get those messages across. I sometimes would totally agree because really I just confusing. feel like at a certain point in your life, if you're not a scientist, science becomes intimidating. But then you're not even like reading about it or necessarily learning about it, which I think is also how we're able to have so much denial of science because 
it's not a part of like most people's daily lives in a way that they recognize and like have to engage with. You know, it's one thing to be like, I trust my meteorologist, but it's very different to like actually engage deeply with the topics and see how they're impacting us. I also sometimes feel like the title of scientist is a bit overwhelming or a lot of people and maybe feels a bit condescending in some ways. Like for people who may not have a traditional path of knowledge um, and like academia can be this gateway of knowledge, but it's not really accessible to a ton of people. And I think just in talking about connecting people with science more is maybe empowering people to understand that like everyone, like literally every person is a scientist because most of what science is, is just like observing things that are happening. And we do that every day in our day-to-day lives. And so I wonder just if there's a way that that message can get across and breaking those barriers down would help with some of the science denial. Um, Because everyone sees the changes that are happening. (laughs) That's my soapbox. (laughs) No, for sure. And experiences them. I mean, it's whether it's heat or a variety of changes happening, it's sort of like you can't deny these things. But I do think that the, the communications part of climate and science is so crucial. And it's something that I think is so hard. It's so challenging to have these, you know, conversations and not either sound too doomsday or like it's like striking the right balance in this kind of almost storytelling way. Um, And it's something that, you know, we are all involved in variety of groups and storytelling efforts to this regard. I mean, that was another thing I think I was curious too, Peyton, to ask you about was, your work with protect our winters because i know that they're doing work around advocate like climate advocacy which is has so takes so many forms and there's the the marriage the necessary meeting of the science the climate science and with scientists and this sort of community of storytellers and creators that they've also brought on board to help to tell those narratives so i just think it's a really interesting you know combination of strategies that they're using to get the word across and not just that I mean they're also lobbying and getting out the word in other ways too and using athletes to do so which is amazing but um, it's cool to see that yeah protect our winners is such a unique organization and they do such a good job and are trying to do trying to be more hands-on with the storytelling aspect in particular uh, for their athletes like Um, providing more support in terms of really honing in on how people tell their climate stories and like what really brought them to understand the context of climate change, um, maybe not only through their sport, but just like within their normal lives. And I think that that is such a a cool thing that they're doing because the only other time that I've heard of storytelling being brought to an organization is with the Sunrise Movement as well. There's definitely a difference in the way that those two organizations work in terms of like telling their stories Um, because like Sunrise, their stories are like really intense and focused on, I mean, it's a youth led organization. So it's focused on like youth outlooks on climate and their experiences. And um, they're also doing more focused on like 
BIPOC communities and their climate stories, which I think is really beautiful. Protect Our Winners for me has really helped me sort of figure out my own story. I did like a storytelling presentation with them earlier this year about how climate has really impacted my life and my sport. The hurricane that wiped out my master's project was a climate-related event that completely upended my life. (laughs) Um, It was a really stressful and intense time, but that like really intertwined with disasters that were happening to people on such large, like so much larger scales. Like for me, because I was in Wilmington and Wilmington's not my home base, but it was a place that I called home for a little bit. But for a lot of people, that was their home. That was like the only place they knew. And they, so many people lost everything and the flooding in itself was insane. And so many people didn't recover for a couple of years. Whereas for me, like I had academic and institutional support to like figure out what resources I have and like run with that. But even then for me, that was a really intense and overwhelming experience and something that I hadn't experienced before in my life at all. Like I'd never been in what I would consider a climate disaster. (laughs) Um, And I was even able to evacuate for a month from there, but coming back was still like you're living in a, in a war zone basically. So yeah, that was my first real experience with climate change. And then to combine that with like trail running and access to trails in a place that's already pretty limited was something that I have sort of been reflecting on over the past few years since that hurricane has happened. And then even then connecting that with access for people to their own land or to different housing was something to all really reflect on. But Protect Our Winners has definitely helped me interweave these moments in my life into this, like, what I would think is an impactful story. And I'm still working on it. But I think that they're doing really well in that, as well as combining those storytelling efforts with policy to back it up. Um, in terms of like, okay, this thing happened. These people are like really passionate about making a change. And here's what we can do to actually make that change. Like we have all the tools we need. We know what we need to do and we just need to do it. And like inspiring people to do that, I think is really, really amazing and bold. Wow. I had, I mean, no idea that you had this personal connection to a climate related event like that. And I think increasingly that is so many of our stories so many people whose lives are affected by wildfires. And even I was like talking to a filmmaker where there was this crazy wind event and all the trees got like blown down trees that had been in people's lives for so long. And they were like trying to figure out like, what does it mean to like lose the trees that have always been around? So these extreme weather conditions are affecting so many people. And I don't know, sometimes it it makes me think about like, how it's sad that sometimes it has to happen to individuals for them to like start to care. There's so many political issues where it comes up where it's like, oh, it had to happen to me and then I cared, you know, and it hopefully doesn't like if we if we wait for things like climate change, we're in trouble and we have waited in the past. Like I think historically we have waited, you know, until someone has a kid that identifies as being LGBTQ and then all of a sudden they care or they have a grandchild who's biracial and all of a sudden they care, you know, or they, you know, there's so many like 
personal issues that have been made political or personal and political issues that are legislative politically, but people don't care until it's directly affecting them. And I really hope, I mean, of course, like weather is changing and things, but these extreme weather conditions, I really hope we don't wait until it's affected us before we take action. When you know better, hopefully you do better. One of the things that we've learned over the years is that while many of us want to make a splash with beautiful, bright-colored clothing, the fashion industry has had some devastating effects on the planet, mainly because of the way that we dye fabric. In fact, the fashion industry is responsible for 20% of the world's water pollution. That's why Merrill has come up with two new ways to reduce dye with their undyed and eco-dyed collections. Compared to traditionally dyed shoes, the undyed collection uses recycled materials, reduces water use by 80%, and saves 50% overall energy through the production process. If you listen to our episode with Trumi Morale, we talk about how we can make better and more conscious buying decisions. And if you check out the visuals for that episode, you see Trumi wearing some pretty cool shoes. They are the Merrill Moab Speed in the Eco Dye colorway. Find out more at Merrill.com. And if you've never shot Merrill before, take off 20% using the code TRAILAHEAD20. You are not only a runner, but you choose to do uncomfortable distances. Can we talk a bit about how you found your way to longer distance and then ultra distance running? Yeah. So on the running front, I feel like I'm just now getting into really long ultra distances. Like I'm not an insane hundred miler at all by any means, but I definitely push myself, I think, beyond what like an average person would want to do. Um, But I think I've just, I'm still developing my love for running and exploring. And it's inspiring knowing so many people who are doing it and who aren't doing it for like the pursuit of sport only, but just to like get outside and see different things and see the world in a way where most people wouldn't choose to see it. Like most people don't want to go running for like miles and miles and miles, but there's something about it where I feel like now I don't think, I feel bad saying this, but I don't think I can enjoy like hiking anymore, (laughs) like only hiking. Um, And it's really unfortunate, probably makes me unlovable by like a lot of my old friends now because they maybe don't want (laughs) to hike anymore, but. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. (laughs) (laughs) There's just like some sort of high. The first time I experienced a runner's high was in high school after this really fast 400 that I ran. But there's like some different runner's high that you get when you're like running really long distances and you're, you don't even have to be like up in the mountain somewhere. It's just like pushing yourself to a different level um, that I think is, it's empowering um, and it's, just really fun to know that you can like commune with nature for so long in such a unique way but yeah I think like so much more of running for me right now has been just like connecting with people like this past weekend I went to the Hard Rock 
100 race and had never like the only other 100 miler that I'd um, seen the finish of or anything was the Scout Mountain Ultras by Luke Nelson last year. And there's just like something about seeing people finish really long races um, and even like finishing really long adventure runs. It's just so emotional and you've like given all of yourself to this place. And I think that that's so beautiful and like raw. And I want to get to a point where I'm doing that all the time. And there's like a small part of me that holds back because like, I don't know, I don't know if I can give all myself to this place, but that that's like something that has really been driving me over these past couple of years that I've really started to expand my trail running. I've never heard anyone say it that way. And I really appreciate that description of giving your all, giving yourself to a place. Because you do, you spend so much time on these trails when you're in these races and training for them too, if you have your favorite trails. Like you know every rock and you know every climb and you know when it flattens out, like you really intimately get to know the landscape. So I love that that imagery. I know we want to chat a little bit more about the community with you because that's a really interesting piece to dive into. But before we do, I also want to go back for a sec and just tell folks, you have also participated in the Olympic trials. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like you just described this runner's high you had for the first time after a 400. I know Faith is also a sprinter. Anyone who does track things is a sprinter. I don't know if that's what, if that's right. Anyone like I don't even know. To me, I'm like, if you do a fast thing on a track, like equals sprinting. So anyway, but um, but yeah, I like I also just would quickly love to hear more about like your pre trail running running, because I always am so fascinated to ask people their stories of like how they arrived at getting into this world. Because I also think you said the the, the other thing you said really well, all of these I want to write down because everything you're saying like really resonates for me um, about, you know, not many people want to do these distances. And I think that's a really good way to put it because it's true. And, um, and a lot of times is met with like, what, how could you do like, that's wild. Why would you do that? And so (laughs) I think it's really unique when you meet, like, that's kind of what bonds the trail community together is there's this sense of like, yeah, we all choose to do these distances that are pretty ridiculous to some, but we really care a lot about it. But um, yeah, anyway, and I just I was just curious about like your running background before finding trails. Yeah, so I definitely think that Faith would beat me in a four hundred. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know about these days. <laughs> I think she definitely had me. I saw you running in Boulder. <laughs> There's only one way to find out. There's only one way. We must have a foot race. <laughs> yeah, I I started running when I was in high school. I hated it so much. I only started running because I was trying to uh, do some conditioning for volleyball. I was on my high school volleyball team and that was like my thing that I wanted to do. I just wanted to be a volleyball player and that was it. So I started cross country with a friend because she was going to condition for swimming and so we did this together and I I had fun on the short runs that we would do as a team but then when I would come to races in the middle of races I would just stop and walk and I would be like so upset and like why am I even doing this why am I here and then I would finish the race and I would be in like the top (laughs) 10 of like this race and my teammates hated me (laughs) 
<laughs> because I would like pass some of them on the varsity team. And then I ended up being on varsity just by happenstance. And, and I think I just didn't really understand that in running, you're supposed to pace yourself. Um, like even in races, like not everything is a, an all out sprint. And so I reflect on that a lot. One, because it's hilarious. And two, because I feel like that was like my first intro into ultra running because in ultra running, you can stop as many times as you want and you can like power hike and you can do whatever you want. And it's great. That is so my, also my experience. Like I was basically forced to run cross country by my track coach. Multiple times I tried to quit and he'd always like convince me it was like good for me. And I'd like walk out and be like, shoot, wait, am I still on the team? Like, how did I not quit just now? Because he was just like powers of persuasion. But same thing, like I would just like everyone would pass me and then like I'd get to like the last 800 and I'd just like sprint and pass like 10 people and like I wasn't like the best but I would like I would like get to the point where I was scoring for the team and people were just like if she only like understood how to pace like it wouldn't have to be this like desperation at the end and I remember my last cross-country race I like dropped to the ground and I cried I was so happy I was like I will never do this shit again (laughs) and like years later like still running on trails or is this just a really good case for power hiking? Because I think y'all just made great, great uh, arguments for why, <laughs> you know, who needs to run the whole time? Case in point. It saves energy. It does. So Addie and I, one of the ways that we met was right around Ultra Trail Mont Blanc in 2017. We were both running different races as part of the race series. And I remember finishing my race, um, which was the OCC, which was a 55K. I remember finishing and then like Killian Jornet was finishing that section of it, like at a much longer race, like a few days later. And I remember him power hiking like the same section that I had power hiked. And I was like, oh, I'm basically as fast as Killian because we both are. Same, same. It was like so funny, but to see like some of the best people, you still like, it just makes sense to power hike certain areas because you know, like, the end is not this one hill, like, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, but I think, speaking of Killian, um, it, it's so funny to go from, like, you know, not knowing anything about the world to then, like, coming into the running community. Like, you mentioned Luke Nelson. Scout Mountain Altars is a race that I would love to do as well. And, like, you, I don't know, in my experience, like, pretty quickly got to meet, like, so many of my, like, trail running heroes and just like such rad people and I was like wow like it is it's a small community and I think at the same time like there's not a lot of black women (laughs) out there um (laughs) I'd love to hear a little bit about your experience like navigating this new big strange world of trail running and like being in community with so many people and then also like you know I know you've talked about representation and things like that as well like where are you now in that journey? I feel like I'm still trying to figure it out. Really, the first time I was ever asked that question was after the trials, because also during the Olympic trials, it was like a really big deal that there were only, um, it was like four or five of us in the Olympic trials out of a field of over 400 women. 
which was just crazy. But then even in thinking about it, I'm like, oh, it's really not that crazy because that's literally been my experience (laughs) throughout my entire running career. To clarify and add context, since Peyton is so very humble, we actually first heard about Peyton through our friend Claire Gallagher, who was on an earlier episode of The Trail Ahead. We heard about her when we did, because in 2020, at the age of 24, she was one of the very few Black women to participate in the Olympic trials for the marathon. I think I just normalized that for a while, and it is sort of normalized right now still in all running communities, I think that there have been more efforts over the past few years to increase representation and diversity in running, but it's still something that like I still face on a daily basis. Because I've grown up in a space like that my entire life, I sort of feel like I know how to navigate it, but it doesn't feel particularly comfortable. Like I absolutely would love to see more black women or brown women in general um, trail running. And I, I've connected with several other women in the space, not only in running, but in like mountaineering and climbing that have been really cool to see. And actually even in Boulder, I've met a couple of other black women who our trail runners and it's been really exciting to um, connect with them. And yeah, I think we're here, but it's just maybe we're not as like open about it or maybe we just don't like to identify ourselves by our sports, which I find a lot of people do. But most of the time when I talk about representation and, and running, it's about just increasing visibility and trying to show that this, especially the running community is like really welcoming. And I feel like I have definitely felt that more and more being in the trail running world. And I don't know necessarily why that is. I think trail runners just in general are extremely humble and like super social people. Like I'm pretty introverted generally. And so being around so many social people has really pulled me out of my shell. (laughs) But yeah, I think that uh, the community has a lot to offer. It's just making sure that we are reaching out to people in like authentic ways that resonate with them and maybe making sure that running doesn't only mean trail running. Um, it can mean like running in any sort of space or place where you would reach more people. It's interesting to be from like a sprinting space Coming from a sprinting background, so many of my experiences, the majority of people were Black. You know, I ran in high school and when I was still in public school, like, was competing with, you know, and and it's just interesting because when we watch the Olympics for track, like, everyone's Black. Um, and even watching, like, the world is happening right now and, like, everyone's Black. And I think the, the bizarro nature of, like, and I'll say, like, when you get to a marathon and up because I think we should say the, Olymp- the Olympic trials that you were competing was for the marathon. I also think the way that the media has covered things very often is it's really negligent in terms of, I feel like I'm jumping around quite a bit, but like with all of our huge marathons, they're being won by black women. Like a lot of women from Kenya and from Ethiopia, like they're setting crazy records and winning these things. And so often the focus is like, oh, the white American woman that came in fourth. 
And it's like, yeah, like she's also freaking rad. And yeah, she's American. So I can understand why we're putting that in news story. But like the media isn't also working to recognize these larger than life black women who are in the distances. And I think from a representation angle, like it just, it really doesn't help. And then if you're not seeing it at that distance, you know, if you talk about like a marathon as being the probably most well-known long distance, if you're not even like seeing it at that level, then you're not going to see it at the ultra level as well. And I agree. There've been so many efforts to diversify and it also takes a long time. And I'll also say like some of the best marathoners that I know personally are black women, you know, and, and it's still sometimes bizarre to me that I can show up to so many like trail meetups and summits and things and be like one of the few, it still kind of blows my mind sometimes, but I also appreciate the progress that people are making and the individuals are making that communities are making to like establish that these places are for us too. Yeah. I feel like it's hard in the, in the U S we have like some sort of weird qualm with recognizing like African born Americans or like uh, Africans who moved to America and like are American, but like fully recognizing people as American, um, which is something that I didn't really realize until after the trials because everyone was asking like me specifically as like a black person who was born in America. And I'm like, but this doesn't make any sense because literally like two black women were in the top three <laughs> of this race. And like, I don't understand why you're. I don't know. It's just a very weird dichotomy that I think this country specifically likes to make um, to distinguish black people from each other. But it's like we're all we're not all the same, but like we're all black. We're all a part of the same community. Um, So you should recognize all of us. Yeah, I mean, I 100 percent think it's racism and unconscious bias. Like, I think. Or maybe unconscious is like too kind. But I I do think that we still have all these prejudices of saying like, oh, like Africans are somehow different. Like, oh, well, Kenyans and Ethiopians, like they don't count. Like we know they're like not even human, like something's in the water. And it's like, no, actually, like it's their fucking training. It's their fucking training background. Like, like stop, you know, and it's like. But yeah, I think it's that that desire to discount, um, you know, what is supposedly not understood. It's like, oh, well, like, you know, we know, like, of course, like the, the you know, Kenyan woman is going to be amazing. But like, well, a black American woman, like, how could she possibly be here? And it, yeah, it's like, could she come to like years of slavery or something or like colonization? Yeah. Yeah. But it's still, I think it's related that same desire to dehumanize us and say that our bodies are like only for work or only for labor or of course you know they're freaks of nature or they're like brutes you know they're not even and like to create this distance and this separation in terms of our humanity okay so i'm interrupting my own rant for a second because i was so worked up that i wasn't including names Naming is so important when it comes to including people in legacy and history, even in just our little podcast, when so often folks from historically marginalized communities are written out of history. 
So the American runners who came in the top three and thus made the U.S. Olympic marathon team in 2020 in the trials were Alphine Tuliamuk, Molly Sadell, and Sally Kipiego. Both Alphine and Sally are originally from Kenya. They moved to the U.S. for college and have been competing in the U.S. ever since. Additionally, if you look at the major marathons around the world, or if you just love distance running, there are barely names bigger than Bridget Kosgai and Mary Katani. Actually, if you look at marathon rankings of all times, there's only one American woman running for Team USA ranked in the top 30. There are incredible, badass marathoners in this country, and only two in the top 50. I would say it's just nationalism. We're not noting these other runners because they're not American. But Paula Radcliffe is a white British woman ranked number two of all time in the marathon distance. And she has always been given so much more attention than some of the best African women marathoners in the world. She's a GOAT, to be sure. But the fact that she is so much more of a household name, even when she is also not American, makes it so obvious that race, language, and bias is also a factor in this conversation. Okay. Back to the in real time rant. And then it makes them so able to do the same thing to these African women and African athletes, like men as well. You know, I think there's this like weird, like, you know, it took like breaking too for anyone to even know who Kipchoge was and then to call him like the goat. And it's like, cool, there are so many. Black women marathoners who are freaking goats. And, you know, and it goes back to to this, like, differentiator between women's sports as well. And we're seeing that in across the board with the WNBA and with women's soccer, like the discrepancies in pay and the discrepancies in funding and all of this. So I don't know it, but it's what happens at the highest level that trickles down all throughout every recreational league and then college and then high school and then like even before like getting the chance to come out um to try something out I mean I think it's you know I don't know I feel like I'm ranting but I even feel like all the like black people don't camp black people don't swim like oh black people don't do distance the the idea that like any kid would be told that like black people don't do distance is like so not true it's like the why yeah I mean, but honestly, like for a while, that is something that I sort of internalized, like when I started in high school, because yeah, like immediately people were like, oh, are you a sprinter? Are you a hurdler? I'm like, no, I do not run that fast. (laughs) Like I will go the long distances and I will be good at that. But and that was like shocking for people. But yeah, that's like, and even being in that world, um, as the only black person or one of the only black people on a collegiate cross country team while your track team is like majority black is also different and confusing and complex and you're like trying to make sense of it and that's like totally something that I feel like I personally internalized and told myself (laughs) which is not the right narrative (laughs) but yeah I would hope that I'm well I sort of would hope that I'm alone in that because that's not something you should internalize, but I definitely don't think I'm the only person that has felt that in those spaces. So, No, and I really appreciate both of you sharing what you did. And I mean, I'm just listening to this conversation, like learning a ton and also shaking my head as a, I mean, it's just some of this stuff is 
so sad and yet so real in the, in these spaces. And I think, I mean, one thing that it just brings up for me was actually a conversation we had in another episode with Claire Gallagher, who Peyton, I know we were talking about as your new Boulder neighbor. <laughs> um, and we just talked with her about how like access in running basically, right? Like this sort of sense of like, it's just a pair of shoes and then it's, you know, and then you're out there and, but, we on this podcast and in general talk all the time about what does it mean to see yourself in the outdoors? What does it mean to see or or to see yourself in sport represented? And I think that I have started to think a lot more about, I mean, I've, I just shared with you, I just moved to California and I'm out in Oakland and I'm showing up to these trail running and running groups for the first time. And I am so nervous. And I, I mean, I'm pulling in in the parking lot and I'm like, oh my God, I don't know anyone. This is terrifying. And I'm a white girl and I see people that look like me. That is the still the fear that I feel pulling up to those groups as someone who sees themselves represented. Right. And so like that to me is my, and I feel like I've talked to Faith a lot about this in the past few months as I've been like the new girl in town showing up to these things and being like, cool. So if I'm terrified to show up and nervous that I won't be able to keep up and also automatically dropped by these groups or whatever, you know, like, so I think that we also have a pretty white audience for this podcast. And I think that we, I have a lot of people that ask me, what can I do? Right. What can I, how can we as white people make the space more diverse? You know, there's so many ways to take that conversation. And yet I think that like one of the things I have started to say is like we can just be aware like I had not cultivated that level of awareness in myself until like very recently I want to share that with people because I hope that listeners or not listeners or just anyone in general can start we can start to have this level of awareness and that I think can lead I hope I mean maybe this is also like pie in the sky easy for me to say as a white person but like I really hope that that level of awareness can start to cultivate change because how we, yes, show up to these things, but also how we welcome folks into the space or like go up to someone and share like, hi, I'm also terrified to be here. Are you also, hey, want to run together or whatever it is, like just that sense of welcoming or being vulnerable and bringing that vulnerability into the space. And I'm really not trying to sit here also and being like, vulnerability will cure racism in sports. No, like, of course, like, so many deeper levels to this. And like, I'm so serious when I say that, like, I really, I don't know the answer, but I, I hear both of your experiences and it's so, it's like saddens me. And I think Claire had a similar reaction. We were talking about this with her. It saddens me, but it also like gives me some level of like hope or encouragement that both of you exist in the trail running space and are like, and are dedicated to also trying to solve this and like we can do that together maybe but at the same time it does take all of us and like hence the whole point of this podcast it's an interracial dialogue like that's why I'm here too as someone who is in this space as a white person understanding that like I can either be part of the problem or I can try to be part of the solution and I just like my big call to action to the running community and beyond is like cool and and when I say that I mean like a very homogenous community a white community that looks like me like how can we be part of the solution together? So anyway, that's my so talk about soapbox. Oh my goodness. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I appreciate your 
perspective and I mean I totally agree on I mean I know also that vulnerability won't solve racism in the drowning community but I do think that it does help in taking a step some of the main things that I've learned because like I mentioned I'm a very shy person and I I don't like to broadcast like all the runs that I do I don't like to like I'm not used to being in a group setting at all times like while I'm running and so that's like a big leap for me just innately to go run with a running group and like there's so many running groups here in Boulder now and it's like I have this sense that I'm a bit overwhelmed just in general because like everyone runs and it feels like it won't be a thing to myself or I feel like like I'm just automatically intimidated like I feel the same as you Addie moving to a new place and like trying to make friends in this in these strange spaces and I appreciate all the people who have been like have shown a sense of vulnerability with me and like welcoming to me as I am huffing and puffing up a trail because I can't handle the altitude yet and they're like slowing down and walking with me and not running off in the distance and being like okay bye see ya at the end of the trail Running is a powerful tool for activism. The act of traversing the planet's most beautiful landscapes connects us to the places we run, transforms us with every step, and encourages us to stand up and fight when these places and communities are threatened. With that in mind, we're so psyched to shine a spotlight on Patagonia's Run 2 film series, which introduces us to runners who use human-powered movement to advocate for causes close to home and heart. If you're an avid listener of The Trail Ahead, you'll recognize Lydia Jennings in Run to Be Visible, capturing her during a 50-mile run highlighting indigenous scholars and scientists. In Run to Save a Watershed, runner Felipe Cancino, who I had the joy of meeting and running with a few years back, takes us through stunning locations in his home country of Chile and tells the story of a watershed threatened by development. The latest film highlights Martin Johnson of England as he attempts to set the fastest known time on the 184-mile Thames Path, while also learning more about himself and the entangled history between Black people and the Thames River. Head to patagonia.com run2 to watch the films and learn more about how you can get involved. There are so many people in this world that will do that which I really appreciate but that's like been one of the main reasons why I like continue to go back to like group runs and stuff and races is like there is a lot of generosity also at the hard rock (laughs) race I had this hilarious moment because I was this was like the day after I had done a really intense workout and had just been at like higher altitude for a day or so. And I decided to go, I thought that I, so I was crewing with the normal team. So for Killian and Dakota, Dakota Jones. And um, it was funny because I was, I said yes to doing this, what I thought was going to be just a hike. Like I didn't think we were going to run. Um, so I didn't, bring a bunch of like running clothes or whatever and I brought this huge pack that was a mistake (laughs) 
And I decided to like go with these two photographers who were wearing, were like clearly wearing running clothes. And like, I did not catch the the cue, but they were like, okay, here we go. And then we just started running and I was like huffing and puffing up this trail. And then we get up to the top of this pass and there are a ton of people there waiting for the hard rock runners to come in because it was a big spectating area and then a pl- good place for the filmmakers to come. But what was like so funny was that up until we got to the top of this pass, I was so hot and I was like sweating so much. And then we get to the top and this huge gust of wind comes through and it's freezing cold. And like, I'm from the South, so I'm not used to extremely cold weather or anything. And so it was just like a shock to me. And I immediately got chilled and was starting to put my clothes on, but I was shivering. And like the thing that just like melted my heart was that people, there were so many people up there there were a ton of people that immediately saw me like shivering and were freaking out and people like sat me down in the warmest spot and like gave me an emergency blanket and like helped me put my clothes on and were like helping me give me my food. I didn't need this much support, like at least I don't think I needed that much support, but it was really wonderful to know that there were so many people there that were like there for me in that moment. And I think that just if we keep that momentum in the trail running community in terms of like just being there for people, being really welcoming and just like offering an opportunity to go out on a beautiful run. It doesn't have to be on a trail or like anything, just some time to socialize and run is like all you really need to start bringing people together more and like bringing more people into the sport. Cause that it was such a beautiful moment for me in the midst of me being freezing cold and like (laughs) being filmed about how hilarious this thing was. Like even afterwards, people like after we got down from the trail and we're at different points of the race, crewing people, like other people were checking up on me and like making sure I was okay, which was really sweet. And I just, I just think that there are so many wonderful people in this, in this community that, want to be there for other people and like want to be more inclusive and diversify the space and like having that momentum is exactly what we need. Thank you so much, Peyton, for joining us on this episode. We're so grateful to get to chat through many aspects of your very full life and hear your unique perspective on climate, running, advocacy, and more. To learn more about Peyton, find her on Instagram at ptcruisin22, that's two twos at the end, or catch her on her new local trails in Boulder. This week on The Debrief, with the passage of the recent climate bill in the Senate, we wanted to talk through the bill in more depth, especially since this episode is heavily focused on climate. So we reached out to Natalie Mebane, Senior Director of Climate Solutions at the Wilderness Society, or TWS, with the U.S.'s take on the bill overall. A cool thing to note is that Faith is on the board of TWS, so it's great to connect many dots in one conversation.
Hello, everyone. This is The Debrief. We're here with Natalie McBain, who's a sustainability and policy expert with extensive grassroots organizing, fundraising, and campaign experience. Um, Natalie is currently the Senior Director of Climate Solutions in the Strategy and Policy Department at the Wilderness Society. And previous work includes the Sierra Club, 350.org, and the National Children's Campaign. Natalie, thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you so much for having me today. This week, a historic climate bill was passed in the Senate. For those who don't know anything about this bill, could you maybe give an overview of what's in it and what was the long road to get here? And I know there's a lot about it that's very encouraging and groundbreaking. There's also some areas where there's more work to be done. Absolutely. So the Inflation Reduction Act, which recently passed the Senate, and we expect to become law very soon, invests close to $370 billion into renewable energy and other climate provisions. Um, And it's also bigger than just climate and environment. It also deals a lot with our healthcare system, especially with Medicare and capping costs uh, for folks who receive Medicare benefits. So it's a large, robust bill, not just of environmental spending, but also social spending as well. Very cool. And can you say the name one more time? Sure. It's the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, and it was introduced just briefly a few weeks ago uh, by Senator Schumer and Senator Manchin, and it's a negotiation that they have been working on for quite some time. And so this is the budget reconciliation bill uh, that we as an environmental community have been pushing for since 2021. Can you talk about some of the climate-related solutions that are included in this bill? So the Inflation Reduction Act really for the first time intentionally invests billions of dollars into building clean energy across the United States. Um, As you know, for for decades, still to this day, uh, our federal government subsidizes fossil fuel companies. It actually subsidizes still the production of fossil fuels. But we haven't had really anything near the same investment level for clean energy. And so what we're really seeing is the federal government actually investing in the production of clean energy and tax credits as well for clean energy that will make it more affordable for everyone and really make it more accessible. Uh, Clean energy already currently is cheaper in many places than any type of fossil fuel. And so this will give it that extra push that it needs to actually become hopefully our dominant energy source across the country. And that's something that we've needed for decades. I'm curious too, Natalie, if there's a way that they've like, have they quantified the greenhouse gas emissions that are, you know, reduced from this bill? Or is that kind of like the next step here? Because I'm just curious in terms of nationally determined contributions, NDCs, you know, what that means for the U.S.? So in terms of the actual, they, it's it's not so much a, a, the calculation of exactly how many gigatons. I think that would be a little harder to calculate. But in terms of percentage, the bill's goal is to cut our emissions 40% below 2005 levels. And so that was chosen as a baseline of levels of pollution. Um, and so that 40%, it's not as high as President Biden wanted where he, you know, last year on Earth Day uh, that week, he had a a summit and he pledged to cut our emissions 50 to 52 percent 
between now and 2030 for our nationally determined contributions, essentially what we pledge as a country to the rest of the world that we're going to reduce our emissions. Now, we want him, obviously, we want President Biden and our nation to achieve that 50 to 52% cut. This bill on its own doesn't get us there in terms of its current goals of 40% cuts. And also, it's a little hard to measure exactly what percentage is realistic because there's so many variables in there that could determine, you know, it just depends so much on also markets. Do fossil fuels get phased out faster because this bill invests so much in clean energy that fossil fuels are less desirable? That's one of the hope, you know, hopeful effects. But the bill also ties in more production at the same time, more leasing of public lands for fossil fuels. And so it's kind of going to be a, we have to see and really continue to push because if we're going to make these cuts and make the goals even of this legislation, it cannot be done alone. There has to be a high level of executive action as well in order to make this bill as successful as possible. And one of the things that you said, you know, there are still some things included in the bill, including leases. I know I've specifically been hearing a lot about there were not additional protections for the Arctic included that were desired by a lot of people in the environmental community. Can you specifically point out a few of the places where there will be more work to do based on some of the compromises that were made? Absolutely. So as we mentioned, you know, this is a bill that it is very different than the original Build Back Better bill that we were all familiar with last year that everybody was tracking. It's a very different bill than the House passed Build Back Better bill that passed last fall, which was an you know a, a excellent bill. This bill does have a lot of compromises that Senator Schumer included in order to get the support from Senator Manchin, some of them being mandated um, offshore and onshore lease sales for fossil fuel development. Just as a time, you know, when President Biden was running, candidate Biden, he made a very clear commitment that he wanted to end fossil fuel production and phase it out on public lands in general. And that was something that we were very excited for in general, that this was a commitment from the president. Unfortunately, this bill would require massive lease sales take place before clean energy production can be permitted on public lands. And that's that's really a shame because clean energy is already cheaper. And the president has also made a commitment, especially related to offshore wind, to build several gigawatts worth of offshore wind, which would you know power tens of millions of homes. And so the fact that It's this trade of you can't have clean energy unless you give fossil fuel companies more opportunities to drill, which they already have plenty of opportunities to drill on our public lands. It's just it's very disappointing. Um, And as you mentioned, the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, which was opened up in the December 2017 um, tax reform bill, it opened up a leasing program in the Arctic Refuge. And this is an area that, you know, the Wilderness Society and and many, many other groups, especially the Gwich'in Nation, have been fighting to protect for for decades. And so that was very disappointing to see that the House passed Build Back Better bill included protections for the Arctic Refuge. So those are just a few of the things that have fallen out from the House passed bill from last year. And just overall, you know, we really feel like 
we're at a place in time and climate change and climate crisis. We cannot have compromises. I mean, the, 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 the earth doesn't compromise. The earth is just going forward. We can't compromise with physics. And so as a country, we really have to really imagine and know that climate change is not a impending threat. It is already harming and killing people today. And if we are serious then we have to take way more action to actually get to our climate goals of a no more than 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming. So this bill alone is not going to give us everything we need. And we want to make sure people understand that this is a starting point, not an ending point. I've been so confused as to why one senator, Manchin, has been able to stop so much and have so much power um, for both Build Back Better and now again. And I, I, you know, as someone that I don't totally understand at all the inner workings of all these different politics, is that something that you feel comfortable like talking about? Like, why? Oh, absolutely. I find that, you know, the way our politics works is it's set up, especially in the Senate, because, you know, we have the filibuster, which we can easily lift. The filibuster is just an agreed upon rule that the senators agree decide to follow. It is not any law. It is not something that they have to, uh, they could just vote to overturn it and say, now the majority rules, just like how it works in the House. The Senate in particular is set up in a way that because of the filibuster that just makes it less democratic. It's kind of like the electoral college. The person with the more votes with more votes isn't necessarily the one that wins, right? And we've seen that happen time and time again with uh, many consequences. But it's similar to that. I think that you know, our politics have gone to essentially the lowest common denominator. Who can wield their power to stop what they don't want? There was a time when our government was proud to pass laws and actually govern. It has now become, from what I have seen in the last especially 15 years, uh, a, a point of being proud to stall things to show that you can wield your power. It's become a lot more about personal uh, personal power and grandstanding than it does about legislating what you actually need to for the American people. And we also have to be honest about money and politics. Um, it's not that some of these senators and representatives, it's not that they're, they don't understand their job to represent the American people. Many are representing the corporate interests that have paid them to be there. So they are representing their constituents, but their constituents are not us. And I think we have to remember that as long as money is able to control who gets elected, these corporations are electing their representatives in the federal government and on the state level too. And so that's the biggest problem of how one senator or two senators can essentially derail the president's agenda of their own party. Um, and that's that's really disappointing because President Biden came into office with a very ambitious agenda that we were all very excited for. And he has had to run into these roadblocks time and time again because of these, you know, particular members in his own party who are representing the wrong constituents. Thank you so much. I, I think that's something that uh, time and time again, hearing these names in the news, I've just been like, how is this even possible that one or two people can just have this much disruptive impact. 
it's disappointing. And it's something that we can change. I mean, it's totally something that we as Americans in our democracy accept. You know, our government is only as good as what we accept from it. And it's not a matter of, oh, it's being done to us. It's what do we actually want our government to look like? What do we want our democracy to look like? Democracy is fragile. You know, we saw from everything that happened, you know, a year and a half ago, it's very fragile and it can be taken at any moment. We cannot take it for granted. And if we allow um, other interests, such as, you know, major fossil fuel companies and others to essentially wield their agenda with our in within our name, then this is the government we're going to have. But luckily, you know, we have elections every two years. And if we really, really want to change it, we can absolutely vote and make sure that we elect a government that it does represent us. Thanks to Natalie Mebain for joining The Debrief, and thanks to you for joining us on The Trail Ahead. Don't forget to check us out on Instagram at trailahead underscore podcast, and please consider supporting us via Patreon. Learn more at patreon.com slash thetrailahead. See you next episode. is created and hosted by us, Faith E. Briggs and Addie Thompson. It's produced by Anna Agogo at Adode Media. Christina Stella is our editor and sound designer. Podcast art is by Shar Tuiasawa. Check her out on Instagram at Punky Aloha. And special thanks to the amazing teams at Merrill and Patagonia. Thank you also to our team on the visual side. Our videos are filmed by Tyler Wilkinson Ray, Alex Igadbashian, and Matt Hayes and are edited by Jillian Sorrell at Cartel TV. Our still images are captured by Fred Gorris and Caroline Watley. For updates and additional links, visit trailaheadpodcast.com, where you can also leave us a voicemail. If you like what you hear, please send us a note via Instagram at at trailahead underscore podcast and subscribe. Please also consider checking out our Patreon at patreon.com slash trailahead. Thank you for listening and for spreading the word. If you like what you hear, please tell a friend. Don't forget to check out the video profiles we make about each of our guests. And to all of our incredible guests, thank you. You make the world better. See you next episode.